0: Okay, we began chapter 18 last week, and the plan is to finish chapter 18 tonight. So we're seeing in this text the further decline into sin and apostasy for the nation of Israel within the Old Covenant, which, for one thing, is making us very grateful, I hope, that, to be, that we are in the New Covenant, which God has instituted and revealed to His people today, that His people since, before, uh, since right before the cross of Christ, when Jesus instituted the New Covenant at the Passover meal with his disciples at that point. And because of the New Covenant, we are right with God because of what Christ has done. But in the Old Covenant, the nation was right with God, not in a salvation sense, but in a temporal society sense based upon how they lived. And if they didn't live in in that right way, then they were, of course, not right with God. And so this served to remind the nation of Israel and the world around them that everyone needs a mediator. Everyone needs the mediating, or would need the mediating work of Christ on their behalf if they were to, in fact, be right with God, because apart from being born again, people won't even desire to keep God's law, let alone be able to keep it themselves. So, one of the main applications of the passage that is, is that if apostasy is left unchecked, it will lead to increasing amounts of wickedness and false worship. And we're seeing that here in the passage as an example of a false teacher and the people who platform them. And God is kind to show us this because perhaps by his grace, you know, we won't be those kind of people. We won't be the type of people who platform false teachers or the type of people who become false teachers as well. So knowing it is what they look like and knowing how they behave is good for us to know. Now, if you remember from last week, I wanted to break down all of chapter 18 into three different parts. We covered the first part last week, the first section last week, which took us all the way through verse 13. We called that section Disobedient Dan. The second part is verse 14 to 26, and calling that Dan's Dilemma. And then the last part we called Dan's Derogatory Worship, or Dan's Derogatory Doxology. So in verses 1 to 13... They detailed how Dan, the tribe of Dan, the Danites, were disobedient to Yahweh in that they didn't take the land God had gave to them. Instead, they sought out a different land that was easy to overcome, one in which they really wouldn't need God's help with in in order to obtain it. And that ended them going to this man Micah's house, and they uh, sought blessing from this false teacher. They, They sought blessing from God by the hand of this false teacher. The Danites were disobedient, And we took some application from that section, and that brings us to where we will begin tonight. So let's read the last half of the chapter, we won't read the whole thing again. We'll start reading at verse 14 in Judges chapter 18. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there, and they came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah, and they asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered in and took the carved image, the ephod, the the household gods, and the metal image, while the priests stood by the entrance of the gate with the six hundred men armed with weapons of war. And when these men went into Micah's house and took the carved image, The ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hands on your mouth, and come with us to be a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man, or to be a priest to the tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah... The men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you, as you come out with such a company? And he said, you, took, you take my gods that I made, and the priest, and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priest who belonged to him came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. And then they built the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel, but the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were the priests of the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made, as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray and ask him to bless our time in it. Uh, Holy God, our Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to take from it what you desire, that you would cause us to know you more, and from that, you would bring us to a right worship of you, to have right thoughts of you, and to grow in love for you. Please help us, Holy Spirit, we need you, in Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so, the narrative continues on from last week, and the Danites have been mobilized, and they're really energized by this false teacher, Micah, and you can see that, I mean, they've got 600 men of war, and they go out to go take this land that uh, the Levite said that God would give it to them. They want the land that they wanted. And this is one of the dangers that false teachers who promise false salvations and false blessings end up doing. They work up those who listen to them so that those who hear mobilize themselves to do what they were taught to do. And this is the exact reason that you, that you see today even so many bad churches doing what appears to be good work in the community, serving food, cleaning up the streets, things that are, of course, good, but in these modern false churches, there's always this notion of piety, of personal religious merit attached to them. And so, in other words, they aren't pleasing to God, even though they are doing these acts of good works, because they do them on a false pretense with a motive that says, you know, hey, look at, look at me and the good things that I did, that sort of a mentality. Today, of course, you have the problem of these things being done under the guise of what people call social justice, which, by the way, is different than biblical justice. And at the end of the day, it just ends up being uh, doing, doing good in a societal setting because in some way it contributes to your salvation, either the actual salvation that you think you have or the assurance that you have in it. And so you have all these, you know, large churches today that are professing to be Christian that go out and do these good things in the community, but they're doing them from a false pretense, energized by their false teachers because they in some way think that it contributes to their salvation, either by keeping them saved or making them saved or part of it, something along those lines. And of course, these so-called good works don't do any of that for the individuals. Uh, Biblically speaking, we do good works and are saved people for God's glory But it is God alone who saves us, and it is Christ's work alone that is the basis of our insurance. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Do everything unto the glory of God. We do good works, we do good things in the community as Christians, for God's glory. But our salvation and the assurance that we have are all based on and rooted in the person of Christ. Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. Ephesians 2.8-9 So false teachers, definitely though, they have this ability to get their hearers energized, to get them to do things, to get them to be active and involved. And a false confidence is always attached to it, and that's what we have here with these Danites. The five spies believed Micah. And they, of course, already had in their hearts and minds a purpose to disobey God and do what they wanted to do rather than what God initially wanted them to do and Micah simply affirmed them in that. The conservative economist Thomas Sowell or has said this about politicians. He says when he says when you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. And that's really what Micah has done here. He wasn't really wanting to help them. He was wanting to help himself. So he told them what they wanted to hear because if if Micah was to tell or the Levite was to help Um, these Danites know the truth, he would have told them, no, God has set apart a land for you. The Amorites are in it. Go and take that. But instead, if you remember from last week, this Levite just told the Danites that, yeah, go ahead and and take this land um, where the Sidonians are not uh, caring for it. So Dan, or the Levite, is looking out for himself. He cares more about what man thinks rather than what God thinks. He fears man over fearing God. We talked about that last week. And so the Danites show up at his door now with 600 armed men waiting outside the city gates. It's verse 14 and 16. So look at what happens here in the following verses. In verse 17, the Levite is probably impressed with himself. He's out at the gate with the 600 uh, men armed with weapons of war. He's probably talking with them. We don't know what he's talking about with them. We don't know the details of the conversation. But most likely, he's probably encouraging them in their sin. He's probably seeing how they're travels have gone so far, and he's reassuring the same word that he told them before, that they're going to have an easy victory here at this, in the city of Laish. He's boasting in the promises that he told them. We could assume that that's the case. But in verse 17, and we're told the same thing in verse 18, the five spies who initially spoke with the Levite, they go to Micah's house, and they take the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image. All this was happening these five spies are doing that while the Levite, this so-called priest of Micah's, is talking with the 600 armed men. They actually go into Micah's house and they steal those items. No idea where Micah is at this time either, but this is premeditated sin, isn't it? It comes across that way if you look at it. Uh, look at verse 14. The five spies say to their brothers, uh, the group in other words, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and metal images? Now, therefore, consider what will you do? It's kind of an interesting to say, right? Like, we don't... (laughs) In this house, in Micah's house, there's an ephod, all these carved images, these metal images, and these figures. What will you do? And we don't hear them say what they're going to do, and so we have Dan's dilemma. Will they take the religious items, or will they just pass by? Are they going to add to their sin more? Well, we know what they do brings to verse 15 and 18, which we've been talking about already. Um, even though we don't read of a plan where they say, yeah, let's go steal those things, or how about you five spies go steal them and we'll distract the Levite at the city gate. We don't read that. It seems obvious that was the goal. 600 men are distracting the Levite while the five spies go and steal the religious items. Uh, one commentator notes that this whole event is a strange combination of religious feeling and low morality. It'd be like someone saying you know, I I really want to study the Bible. And so they go and they steal, like, five Bibles. That'd be weird, right? Like, why would you have this religious leaning, but then also this low morality? He still needs to learn, yeah. So it's just an example of man's depravity. Um, I'm going to do something that the light of nature testifies as being clearly wicked, in this case, stealing, and then somehow believe that having these goods are going to bless me. That's somehow what is going through the Danites' minds. We're going to steal these religious items, and then because we have them, then we're going to be the ones who are blessed. And really, they're just trying to subjugate God, just like Micah did, but they're stealing items in order to do so. It's kind of like modern rappers, in a way, who have, like, cross tattoos, and they wear cross jewelry, and they talk about Jesus sometimes, but then they have song lyrics that are just, Absolutely, morally evil, like okay. about sexual immorality and jacking people and killing people. Um, it doesn't make sense. It's it's a low immorality coupled with religious feeling. And there are many examples in history of people satisfying a religious impulse in a completely immoral way. There's actually a story of people in the 14th century in Europe. Who these soldiers when they would lose their job and they there was no war going on? Well, what would they do to make money? Well, they often just became small um, groups of bandits and they would go into smaller villages and they would rob them and they would burn them all down and you know rape the women that are in them. And these criminals, these soldiers who were just these vagabonds uh, in Europe in this in this time, they would sometimes go into a city and they would. They would uh, like strike up a deal, saying, like, if you give us this much money, then we're going to you know, leave you alone. And if the town refused to give the money, they would attack them. And they re- these were done with like formal negotiations. They're kind of like modern mob members or mafia members, really is what's, what that's very similar to. Well, in some instances, they would even go into the monasteries in these, in these towns and have the priests give them a written document saying that all their sins were forgiven. But then they would go and do this, these you know, wicked crimes. So that type of behavior is going on here with the Danites way back in, um, even before Christ went to the cross, and it happens after that. It happens even today as well, too. Religious feeling mixed with low morality. This is the kind of hypocrisy that James, the brother of our Lord, writes about, by the way. Um, historically, the letter or the epistle of James has been a difficult book for people in the Protestant faith. Martin Luther, for example, wished that James had taken his own advice when James said that not many of you should be teachers. Uh, he called it an epistle of straw. And these comments come from about the book of James because uh, he thought James was denying the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's not the case, though. What James was simply doing in his letter was teaching against and warning against the kind of hypocrisy evidenced in our account of judges. And so often, when, when there is religious feeling mixed with low morality... A person's profession is false. You understand that, right? That's just because someone says they believe in Jesus,
1: and doesn't mean, doesn't
0: mean they really are trusting Christ for well, He's yeah. not really their Lord and their Savior. You right now the great of that. Yeah, you know, we could know, look there. Centuries. Yeah, and absolutely. So James would go on to say in James chapter two, seventeen, that faith without works is dead. dead. Faith without works is dead. That's what James says. And so the point of him saying that is not that you have to do works to be saved, but that if you really have faith, works will flow out of that faith. And so for, for people to have religious feeling but then live immoral, it doesn't make any sense. There, there's, a, there's a problem there. there. There's a warning there they should be seen and taking note of. Then at the end of verse 18, and going to verse 19, we learn of the Levite's dilemma. He has a dilemma in this as well. Not only is Dan faced with the dilemma in our passage, but the Levite is. And so when he notices that the Danite spies have his relics, he says to them, what are you doing? And they're, they're taking his livelihood, right? These are the religious items that Micah believes, possessing them, will cause God to bless him, and the Levite pushes back some when these people have them. But the Danites put a proposition to him, and it's a little forceful. They say, be quiet, put your hand over your mouth. Like, in other words, stop saying what you're saying. Uh, And they put the same proposition to him that Micah did, with a twist, though, right? They play to his greed. They play to his desire for power, for his desire for uh, his pride. And they say to him, they say to him the same thing, is is it better for you to be, or they say, we want you to be to us a priest and a father, but then they say to him, which is the same thing Micah said, but then they also say to him, is it better for you to be a priest to a house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? So uh, we know what he thinks. We read in verse 20 that it made his heart glad when he heard this. Ah, oh, yes, let's betray the master that I've been working for for many years. Exactly. He, he doesn't have any loyalty to Micah. He doesn't have any loyalty to Yahweh, the true God at all. There's no... That's absolutely right. He's in it for himself. There's, there's no seeking of the Lord on the Levite's part. Like, he doesn't have to pray about it, you know? He's in it for the money, for the power. If it makes dollars, it makes sense for this Levite. He's not in it for the Lord or for Micah. He's in it for himself. And the, the Levite departs with the Danites, we read. His ministry is growing... Right? I mean, he was, he was at first just ministering to Micah and probably Micah's neighbors and Micah's families, but now here's this whole tribe of Dan that he gets to minister to. And his ministry is growing, but it's not a good thing. Sometimes a growing ministry is not a good thing. It could simply mean that God is giving people over to their sin, which we talked about again last week as well. So there is an increasing wickedness in view for us here. We've already talked about this in this book, how, it leads, how sin leads, often leads to more sin. It's that. But it's on a greater scale here as well. Because now we see that one man's individual sin is about to be picked up by a whole tribe of Israel. And Israel individually and as a whole are plunging headlong greater into, into more sin. It's a depressing account, really. But it's good that God has recorded this here for us so that we can know about false teachers and those who prop them up. And we get a clearer picture of that as we continue Even verse 21 to 26 details Micah's return to the narrative and so Micah and some of his neighbors catch up to the Danites I think that's why by the way why it says that when the Danites took off they put the children and the goods in front of them because they knew probably that if somebody, if Micah was going to come he'd be coming from behind them so the the warriors were all in the back the kids were in the front and and the wives were in the front and so we read in verse 22 that Micah overtakes them it's kind of comical, really. Uh, the Danites are like, at this point, like, what's up with you, Micah? Why are you coming at us like this? You know, I'm sure... What do the... you mean? You just stole all my stuff. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, but I think the Danites realize, and they know that Micah's no match for them. But Micah's response is interesting. It's verse 24. He says, you take my gods that I made. So first notice that. There's a conscience understanding on his part. He believes that a real god or gods are living inside of the little statues that he's made. And the prophet Isaiah points out the foolishness of this. We've looked at that before. But for Micah, this isn't just a game to him. It's worth taking a risk for him, to an extent at least. People who are caught in a false religion really do get invested in them. People who are at you know, even bad churches that profess to be Christian really do get invested in those churches. And he goes on to say, like, well, well, what do I have left? You've taken all this from me, what do I have left? And there's a, there's a lesson for us as Christians in this. Uh, when we stand up to false teaching and false teachers, and we should, we must rightly defend the faith. We must be able to give it an answer for the hope that lies within us. We also have to understand at the same time that people who are caught up in these false religions and again, even if it might be a, a false version of Christianity, that these people really are believing for whatever reason, to, to an extent. And so we should at the same time be truthful and, and not budge for uh, an inch on the truth, but at the same time have some compassion on them. Because if it's not for God's grace, we could easily, easily be in that same position as them too, believing a lie. And, and this man Micah, I mean, he's Believing this lie, he's somewhat sincere. He's he's deadly wrong, but he's he's invested some. Because when the but when the Danites threaten his life, well, that's when it doesn't make sense for him anymore. When the Danites threaten his life, here in um verse twenty-five, they say, "Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life." That's a way of saying we're gonna whoop you and. You know, beat you to your dead, he backs off at that point. There are a couple things to notice here, and we can't spend too much time here, but I wanted to point out two things at least. Number one, false religion is not worth dying for. Now, don't misunderstand me here. It is true that some people do die for their false religion. I always see it commonly with like Islam today, right? Like, uh, I guess we haven't really had this issue lately, but like there was a, th- a thing maybe like a decade ago. not that long ago, where they were like these suicide bombers. And so people that were Muslim would strap a bomb to themselves, and they would go into areas, and they would blow themselves up to blow up a building and blow up this other crowd of people. And they did that because they thought, they think that they would get blessings in heaven from Allah. And it's just like, it's a lie, it's baloney. We don't have time to get into all of that. It's religious people, people. yeah, 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 religious people. So people who believe false religions obviously do sometimes die for that. But Micah's false religion has exposed him here. When it came to death for Micah, it wasn't worth him dying. He was merely using this religious system as a means to bless himself. And guess what? When it wasn't going to be a blessing for him, when it was going to cost him something, he gave it up. He was quick to walk away from it. His household gods and his priests couldn't protect him. It's as if his false gods had forsaken him and now he forsakes them to save his own skin. He's only in this system of worship for what he gets out of it. And listen, okay? There, there are many Christians today, professing Christians today, who are just like Micah, except they're practicing a false religion that is dressed up as the true faith, as Christianity. But as soon as it becomes hard for them to practice their faith, they'll abandon it, because they aren't really worshiping God Almighty. Uh, Jesus tells a story about this relationship with Christianity in a parable, you know, the parable of the sower. You probably are aware of the parable of the sower. He explains to his disciples there like this in Matthew 13, 20, 22. He says, As for what was sown on the rocky ground, so let me back up a little bit. The parable of the sower is about this guy who's sowing seed. The seed represents the gospel and so he's throwing it down and the seed lands in different places and there's these four different places where the seed lands. Each of those different places where the seed lands, the gospel lands, it yields a different response. The first response is that, you know, the, the it doesn't go in at all and it just dies immediately. Then the second two responses are what I'm going to read here. The last response is the only good response, where the seed takes root and it produces, you know, um, fruit a hundredfold, meaning that that there is true salvation in that sense. But these other two places where the seed fell, it didn't produce true salvation. But listen to what Jesus uh, explains it as. This is verse 20 in Matthew 13. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So there are people that hear the gospel, hear the good news that they can be restored and be right with God, and they receive it with joy and happiness. And then in verse 21, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately he falls away. In other words, they leave the faith because life is hard, because of tribulation or persecution. Verse 22, as for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, and then the implication is that he becomes part of you know, the church in some sense. And it but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So we've seen this even as a church before ourselves, right? where we have people who are part of the church, they join the church, they get baptized, they take communion, but then all of a sudden, there's a change. And for, there could be a number of different reasons for that. But Jesus describes it as you know, tribulations in the world, sometimes persecutions, difficult things happen in life, and people just don't actually end up believing and they walk away from the faith. Well, the, the faith in that case wasn't worth, wasn't worth it for them because it was no longer blessing them. And you can even think back. You know, we have it easy as Christians today uh, living in a, in a nation where we have the freedom of religion, back when Christianity first started, you were immediately persecuted. You were you know, often put to death for doing so. And so the early church, they met on the ground. Uh, they, they had to meet in secret. And what was happening in many cases was that the authorities would find people who were pressing to be Christian, and they would ask them, you know, do you deny that Caesar is God? And they would, they would because they're scared, or maybe because they weren't truly believing, they would say, oh, no, 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 Caesar is God, we're not Christians. They would, they would say that they're no longer truly, uh, that they're not true Christians. And then their church would hear about that and they would kick them out of the church because they, they lied about their profession of faith to save their own life. Well, then in, when the Edict of Milan passed and it, there was freedom of religion in Rome, a lot of these people who denied Christ then wanted to join the church again and churches had a really hard time. Like, pastors of churches and the members of churches had a hard time. Like, what do we do? Do we let these people come back in? Or do we keep them outside of the church because they denied the faith when, it, when there was time for persecution? So we have it, We don't have to deal with that right now. And that type of a mentality might be something that we have to deal with in the future. But we have it easy right now to be a Christian. We don't have to deal with that sort of persecution. But if that comes, I mean, it is a. it provides testimony to the fidelity to the truthfulness of your profession of faith. There are people who appear to be really worshiping the Lord God, but when it's not beneficial for them to do so, they abandon the faith. And in that regard, Micah is similar, even though it's clear he was never worshiping the one true God. But he was quick to abandon them when it became threatening to his life. He never had faith. He never had faith, yeah. That's Jesus' point in the parable, you know, that that the seed went into the soil, but it was never truly took root. It was never a true faith. The second thing I want to say is, and this is a good thing for Christians, um, because for people who are truly worshiping the living God, because God has quickened us, because God has made us alive together with Christ, who is our righteousness and justification and hope, um, number one, he can't be taken from us. Someone could come into your house, and they could take all your Bibles and your theology books, but you still have Christ. The government can come and seize this building. They can lock up all of your elders. They could put all the elders and pastors to death even, and you would still have Christ. They could take away your own life, and guess what? You would still have Christ. In fact, in a sense, they're only doing you a favor as they'd be sending you to be with him in glory. God can't be taken from you. Christ Jesus cannot and will not forsake his church. In John 10, Jesus says that his sheep hear his voice, that he knows us and he gives us eternal life and that no one can snatch us out of his hand. Not even bodily death can remove us from the hand of God Almighty. And if you have Jesus, friends, if we have Jesus, people can take from us whatever they want because we have the most important thing. We, we have the one thing that matters at the, end of the, at the end of the day. That's Jesus himself. And Jesus can't be taken from us as... Micah had this false god and this system taken from him. And so for the sake of time, we need to continue on. We're in the last section now. Dan's derogatory doxology. Now, when we think of doxology, maybe you think of a statement in the Bible, like the passage at the end of Romans 11, verse 33 to 36. That's a doxological statement. Or maybe you probably think of a short song, um, you know, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. It's a very short song. It's called the doxology. But in a general sense, Doxology is simply a response to theology in adoration. And so there is good and proper doxology that's based on good and right theology. And then there's bad and derogatory doxology, which flows, of course, from bad theology. And that's the latter that we have here with Dan. Now, last week, we considered the characteristics of the people of Aish, the people that the Danites were looking to conquer, and there's no change in them. Dan swoops in there, verse 27. They conquer them, killing them, burning the city. And they rebuild it, and they name it after themselves. They set up the images and the statues. and They set up the priests. And then we get an interesting commentary that it went on like this for Dan until the captivity of the land. Most people believe that that's in reference to the Assyrians in 2 Kings chapter 15. But it's debatable. If it's the case. Some other people think that it might actually just be until the Philistines come in, in, a, in 1 Samuel I'm not sure either way. But then also, verse 31, we read that Micah's carved image was up as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So then, a couple things. Number one, did you notice the name of the Levite? We finally got a name for the Levite. We didn't get a name in chapter 17. We didn't get a name in chapter 18 until the very last two or three sentences of the chapter. It's Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. And we read that his sons became the priests to Dan. And yes, that is the same Moses that God chose to mediate the Old Covenant through and to lead Israel out of Egypt. The very same Moses who saw the glory of Yahweh on the mountain. The very same Moses who discussed and interacted with God in the, in the bush that was on fire but yet never consumed. And that's a sober reminder, friends, of the often repeated phrase that God has no grandchildren. I don't know if you know what that means. That. Not for that word. I, I think you start as far as how old was this person when he came? I don't know. I wonder that myself, too. I didn't see anything in commentaries that said it differently. And again, remember one of the things that I said at the beginning of chapter 18 or 17 was that we don't really know where this is in the time frame of judges. They, okay, they seem we disjointed. Yeah. We can't just assume it's necessarily post Samson. It might not be that. It might be. But nevertheless, too, family names are passed on. And so you would say that this is the son of Jonathan, well, then the son of Gershon, because that's the next big name you should remember, because Gershon was Moses' son. So there might have been people in between Gershon and Jonathan, just like if we read the um, genealogies for Jesus. There's more than, you know, there's other names in there that people aren't listed, right? But it's to show us this, this specific path back to uh, Abraham or to Jesus. So anyways... It's Jonathan, and this is the very same Moses, the Moses. And again, so my point being that God has no grandchildren, that means that just because you have a family that serves the Lord and loves the Lord, doesn't mean that you do. Just because you love the Lord and serve the Lord, doesn't mean your future children and grandchildren will. We pray they will, of course, but God saves individuals. When a person hears the gospel from the mouth of someone who preaches it or as they read it, a person is born again by the power of the Spirit. You're not just automatically a Christian because your parents or your grandparents are Christians. The gospel is the power of salvation to all who hear and believe. And so as the Puritan Richard Sibb says, as the minister speaks to the ear, Christ speaks, opens and unlocks the heart at the same time and gives it power to open, not from itself, but from Christ. We're born again by the work of God. We don't earn it, we don't deserve it, but our sins are forgiven because of the death of Christ on our behalf, and he gives us faith to believe it and to receive it. And as Sib said, he opens the heart. And so if you believe it, rejoice. But that's the only way to be saved. We can't be saved just because our parents were. D.A. Carson has said that one generation knows the gospel, the next generation assumes it, and the third loses it. And we see that in this example, whether or not this actual generation between Jonathan, Jerusalem, and Moses. But we see that here as displayed in our text in Judges 18 in, in the Gospel according to Judges. And it serves as a warning to us. And one last detail. Dan's derogatory doxology. I call it that because of the last verse of the chapter. You see, the house of God is at Shiloh. The tabernacle is at Shiloh. That is where Israel was to worship. But Dan's false beliefs have led to false worship, a derogatory doxology. Listen, friends, we are not just free to worship God any way that we feel like it. It's different now in the New Covenant, of course, in comparison to how it was in the Old Covenant for Israel here in Judges. We won't hash out those details again tonight. We've done that before. Maybe we'll do it again later. But here's the point to see. There is true worship for Israel here. They They had to take it to that place at Shiloh where the tabernacle was, And then everything else must be false. You don't have acceptable worship one way and acceptable worship another way. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all, Ephesians 4. And for us today, the only way to offer to have a true and good doxology is through Jesus Christ. If he's not your Savior, you're worshiping some other person, yourself, a false God, whatever but it's only through Jesus that we have access to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. May we be found in Him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we see how easily it is for people to divulge into false worship and to exalt our own ideas uh, over what you say is true. We pray that you would have grace on us and never let that be the case. For any of us Lord we thank you for Jesus and the, the salvation that you provide through him we know he is the door of the sheepfold that all of your sheep all of your children it is uh, enter into a covenant relationship with you through him based upon what he has done and his, his in his righteous life and his payment for sin that we committed And so we pray, Lord God, that you would protect us from false teachers and that you would prevent us from ever uh, propping up a false teacher as well. Help us to be satisfied with your sufficient and holy and good word. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.